If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. I'm Pete Wargen from Alan Wargen Property Buyers. This is our two cents segment, and I'm here with Chris Bates from the newly rebranded Flint Group. Chris, how are you? Pete, life is good. Uh, how have you been? I've, uh, like you said, yeah, recently rebranded. Lots going on here, both uh, at work and home. I just sort of saw my fingers on the camera. Actually, my daughter's painted my nails this morning, so. Um, Hopefully, people are enjoying the sparkles on my fingernails. But, um, yeah, how have you been? What's been happening? I think you've been doing a bit of traveling. Yeah, I actually had the same thing, but it was toenails for me. But luckily, my yeah. kids, have, they've moved beyond that phase now to uh, other issues. But uh, luckily, no painted nails <laughs> now. But, uh, yeah, I've been uh, yeah past couple of weeks, just been traveling. I was in Europe and then had a week in Dubai. Uh, this week, I've been back home in Noosa. So yeah, it's always interesting. I've been following some of these uh, uh, websites like digital uh, nomads and nomad capitalists and things like that. And um, the the mantra always seems to be, you know, go where you're treated best. And uh, particularly for people like me who like warm weather, you can go to a lot of these other parts of the world where the weather's great. But um, and sometimes you can go to places where people don't pay any tax but often you do find you you don't really get much in return you pay nothing and you get nothing and uh, although the hotel resorts can be quite nice you don't have to travel too far away and you're into sort of desert or barren outback and it's great to be back in Australia so yes we do have issues here where we have to pay quite a lot of our income in tax and you want to structure things accordingly Uh, but you do get a lot in return it's great to be back amongst the nature and Everything kind of works as well. You kind of forget when you go overseas how lucky we are in Australia. I do think that's one of the benefits of holidays, right? When you come back and you you do come back with a new sense of gratitude and, um, you know, realise just how lucky we are, I guess, as a society over here, you know, from crime to um, cleanliness and just ease of getting around and things like that. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I've learned through traveling, particularly for places that, you know, wouldn't be seen as uh, the more developed parts of the world, the more underdeveloped. And um, yeah, I think uh, that's something we're going to try to really instill in our kids. I think I've learned more about myself and the world and, you know, how big the place is really by doing that traveling. So um, that's a very interesting way to start the, the podcast, Pete. Yeah, I think it's just the, yeah, the juxtaposition. I think mm. I've got a fairly short attention span and, uh I love to travel, but um, I, yeah, I think it doesn't matter where you live in the world. Um, I think if wherever you are, you start to take things for granted. It's only when you go overseas and just coming back to uh, Sunshine Coast, just seeing all the nature, you know, it's a nice uh, green part of the country at the moment because we've had loads of rain, uh, end of summer. You know, there's it's, it's a lot um, in Australia that we, I guess, living day to day, you just kind of take as red or granted, but it's only when you go away for a while and come back, you realise just how good it is sometimes. So, um, yeah, very grateful to be back in Noosa today, although, uh, yeah, um, she's slamming doors around in the background. Not sure what's going on there, but <laughs> I think uh, the kids are off uh, off to school by the sounds of it. So um, we've got a bit to talk about. Um, so let's have a look at the top three stories this week. So firstly, um it looks like a falling office valuation. Something we talked a little bit about on the podcast over the past six months is that's now hap- happening in Australia. It's been happening globally. And now we're starting to see some resale prices for offices that are actually considerably lower than the last transacted price. So it's starting to flow through now. Uh, secondly, um, I interviewed Cameron Murray uh, on the podcast. That's a forthcoming episode. His new book, The Great housing hijack and um, that's been all over the media over the past week or two. Uh, Some interesting uh, points there, he talks a lot about housing supply and his proposed solution so I just have a bit of a think about that in the context of um, housing construction which is slowing now in Australia despite the shortages and then thirdly a Roy Morgan uh, piece of research, mortgage stress close to GFC levels so not mortgage arrears but uh, people under mortgage stress that's increased about 1.6 million loans now um so as many as we've seen really since the uh since the 2008 uh, days when interest rates were higher than they are today and that generated quite a lot of excitement uh, around the trap so um let's start with this um uh, office story chris so i noticed um this week um it seems as though the the public service will be able to have no limit on working from home restrictions. So um, that's not going to help in terms of um, utilisation of office space. Uh, we've got now vacancy rates at 14.5% for offices. Uh, so that's the highest in nearly 30 years, really, since the fallout of the early uh, 1990s recession. We haven't seen that many empty office spaces around for three decades, I guess. Um, and yeah, we're starting to see Uh, some sign now of office values falling in Australia too, which is following what's happened in the US and Canada and elsewhere. Uh, So not everywhere. Some of the, I think the prime grade office towers in the cities have have not really fallen much at all, but it's having a knock-on impact. And the prime stock is doing well, but I think generally people are taking the opportunity to negotiate better lease terms or maybe use less space in general. So, um, uh, and I know you guys at Flint were in the market for a bit of office space. So any insights from you? Yeah, absolutely, Pete. We're in the market to get an office. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of choice out there. So it's actually a good time to be looking, but it also gives you a bit of trepidation. It's kind of like the uh, the buyer fear. When you 
when you're in the market and there's lots to choose from, you sort of think, wow, it's a better opportunity going to come down the line. Do I really want to take this one in front of me that is a good opportunity or do I wait for something better? And I, well, that's sort of a real spiraling effect. That's when, you know, things are really hard to lease unless they're perfect, unless they're really scarce. Um, and um, you can negotiate really strongly. And so that's a really buyer market and in this situation, a you know, a tenant market, you know, if you want to get an office lease. Um, we, uh, you know, an interesting one we're looking at is a, a tech firm that did a $5 million renovation to a floor in a nice tower in North Sydney. Um, and then COVID hit and uh, they didn't need to come to the office anymore. And being a tech firm, they said, well, actually, no, we're going to be completely remote now. And um, this office has just stayed empty for since COVID. So we're talking three, four years now and they're running down their lease. They're paying you know, a million plus in rent um, and um, they can't lease the thing. So we're sort of uh, trying to be a bit of an ambulance chaser here, to be honest, and say, well, you know, maybe we'll take it off your hands for the next 18 months and run your lease out. Um, and, you know, gave them a low ball offer and we're very close to getting that. So that's one option we're looking at. Another option um, is, you know, it is an older building. And, you know, I think in the past, these older buildings were just getting rented out. You know, there was a prime... You know, the demand for office space was so high, vacancy rates were quite low. Um, you know, employers were saying, well, can I cut costs? Will my my employees be happy? They've probably got no choice because they're going to come five days. Will they be happy with this B or C grade office? Yeah, okay, well, let's not push ourselves to the grade A. You know, people, employees didn't expect it. I think that's all flipped. I think uh, employees are like, well, if it's not a great environment, I don't want to come in. And then the employers are struggling to get them in, so they think I've got to have a nice office to really entice them in. How many do I need? They don't want the cubicles. They might need more. Um, so they need to redesign their office space. Leases are running out, you know, particularly as it's been years since COVID's sort of gone on now. So, um, yeah, vacancy rates, I mean, in North Sydney, 20% plus. And, you know, what a lot of the older buildings are having to do is refurb, um, which is very expensive capital outlay. And they not only have to refurb, they're actually having to kit them out. Um, you know, and because the landlord, you know, doesn't really, or the tenant doesn't really want to have to pay for the fit out cost and the make good cost as well at the end of it to rip it all back out. Um, and so another one we're looking at is completely new refurb. It's, you know, done really well, but, you know, I'm talking 40% plus in incentives, you know, maybe even up to 50%. We're in, um, which is ridiculous, you know, massive delayed start date, massive reductions to the actual rent, um, all the incentives are there, um, you know, and so that it looks like we're paying a high rent, but when you take off all the incentives, it's 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 massively discounted. And, um, you know, three years isn't that long, you know, we're working at three at least, but, you know, in three years' time, there's already another bunch of towers coming on in, say, North Sydney, um, as an example, where there was a proper building boom. And so it's a likely in three years' time, it's still going to be a great market to lease in. Um, and so that's absolutely what we're seeing. Um, it's interesting, one of the the ideas that we're going to definitely play in, in our new office, we're probably going to get more space than we need. We, we, um, and we're also going to create something called the Property Hub and um, where we have other professionals in there with us in the property space, you know, and all the different elements of the property market so it's super exciting we've got some asset finance got planners coming in there's some buyers agents that want to be part of it and things like that and um that's uh that's an exciting thing we're going to launch as well doesn't sound like a market at the bottom then uh if you're able to get that uh, much in terms of incentives uh dafr went with the piece office values plunge a cbd market bottoms which uh created a bit of feedback online um they quoted some examples six to eight burke street in melbourne 
sold seven years ago for 180 million, just set to be acquired for 120. So some discounting wow. there in Brisbane, uh, 240 Queen Street, um, 300 million dollar tower. Looks like um, a syndicator raising capital at a price of 257 million. Likewise, 255 George Street. Um, I used to work at 225 Grosvenor Place many years ago. Um, looks like that one um, is now going to be valued at around in a fund at around um, 730 million. So two years ago at the peak, um, 875. So that's a 17 percent discount. Mm. Uh, looks like as well, um, Collins Street Mervac is looking at a 20 percent discount on its uh, valuations or book values from two years ago. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, with vacancy rates actually continuing to rise in early 2024, it looks to me like there might be a way to go here. The analysis in the Fin Review, Jeffrey's analyst um, said that we're close to the bottom, five to ten, five to ten percent to go. Uh, but you know, we've also seen um, there's bankruptcies. Of course, WeWork filed for bankruptcies, and I think a number of banks in the US and Europe have got some exposures here. Um, and there's just not much transacting. I think that's the thing. So I think um, MSCI did some separate analysis that said uh, valuations could fall by another 12%, uh, which would you know take Sydney uh, office values probably down by about a quarter from the highs. We do tend to see this in commercial. It's much more cyclical. Um, it goes with the economy as well. Um, we saw this in the UK. I've had uh, uh, friends who've started small businesses and they bought... Um, commercial property in recent years, which is transacting at lower levels than uh, some of the funds were paying in 2006 and 2007. It's very cyclical market, can get very bullish at times. Um, but at the moment, we've got this big shift towards uh, more time spent working from home. And it, the knock-on impact is massive on office valuations. Uh, I think a lot of people are trying to talk up the market, but um, 30-year high in vacancy rates doesn't really sound like the bottom just yet. Yeah, and I think you're right, that's linked to the economy. And so do you think the economy is taking off? You know, have we bottomed? Are we going to go through this boom? Um, well, there's a bit of pain to come, right? You know, we'll, we'll talk about on our story three. And, um, you know, and that's in the consumer sentiment, consumer confidence. I mean, is it still at 30-year lows, Pete? It wouldn't be far off. It's either maybe slightly better than it was a couple of months ago, but not, you know, not much. Um, and so uh, em employers and, you know, businesses super confident, I would say no. And so... If you want to sign up to big leases and big, you know, costs over the next few years, probably not. And so, um, I do think it's a, you know, the downturns teach you things. I think, um, you know, it would be a few years ago there was a lot of people peddling, you know, syndicated loans and syndicated investments into commercial assets like office. You know, we've got some old tenants in there; they're way under market rent. We can renegotiate their lease when they come off. That lease will go up, you know, 40 percent. Um, we can do that so we can refurb it a little bit cost efficiently and then that make it a bit more green and that's going to increase our rent and this value of this office building is going to go from 40 million to 100 million you know like this is sort of the the pitch that a lot of accountants put these packages together and they sell to their clients because they they charge a, a fee for setting it up they charge a management fee um and uh so i think you just got to be careful of these things you know when they especially those ones are usually they are the more B and C grade buildings that they target because they're more affordable. You know, to get the A grade building, it's way out of their syndicated, um, you know, uh, I guess maximum amount. So, yeah, I think these downturns always teach you things. And the more that you, uh, more time goes on, you think, hang on a sec, what could happen? And no one would have expected COVID, but 
there's always something. There's, you know, whether it's the European debt crisis, whether it was Donald Trump, whether it was, you know, the wars over the last couple of years and the oil crises, or, you know, all the way back to the GFC, there's, there's always something going on um, that can be a bit of a black swan event where you're like, oh, wow, actually, I didn't expect that. And how has that affected what I thought was guaranteed? Definitely isn't guaranteed. Definitely, yes. It seems that something breaks every decade, whether it's uh, uh, the, well, the early 90s recession that we talked about, then there was the tech bubble, then the, uh, the subprime crisis, and then, and then the pandemic. And uh, it's hard to predict what the thing might be, but there's always a thing, as they say. Um, so, yeah, we'll watch this space because it uh, looks like another win for the working from home uh, side of the equation for the public service, at least... Um, uh, two to three days a week, it seems, with flexible arrangements for a lot of workers. And that, that just removes a whole heap of the demand for office space. Um, there was a lot of talk about conversions into residential properties, but for various reasons, it's just not happening. I think most office space just doesn't easily convert into units. Uh, it can be done, but usually uh, it seems to involve pretty much gutting the entire internal part of the property and rebuilding it so it's just not an easy conversion um so it looks like in that context falling rents and falling office valuations uh the order of the day for some time to come so um second story of the week um cameron murray um or dr cameron i should say dr cameron murray uh, releases his book the great housing hijack now i did a, a long form interview with cameron on this um i think um i'll, I'll just highlight probably two points that really I think from an investor's perspective, I, I found very useful. Um, so Cameron, he has a, a model of the housing market which he explains uh, how um, asset prices uh, come to be the valuations that they are, likewise for rents. Uh, he also talks about density and spatial equilibrium, so where people choose to live and in what kind of density. And um, he makes the point that for every, uh, there's a kind of symmetry to the housing market. So for every uh, sort of uh, person's income as a landlord, there's another side to that equation. There's the expense for the renter. And um, of course, um, as Cameron points out, there's a lot of vested interest in the commentary media, you've got developers, then you've got politicians who are often property owners themselves, academics who are sometimes uh, funded by various think tanks or uh, vested interests. And then there's commentators and economists and then people like you and I who work in the industry and we've got our own take on things. Uh, I think here are the, the two things that um, I really took away. Firstly, uh, Cameron pointed out that the rent to income ratio never really seems to change. People always spend between 20 and 30% of their income on rent in the rental market. Um, so but basically about a quarter. And he explained how uh, the reason for that, which makes a lot of sense to me, because I, I think back to my uh, various times along the journey as a renter. And when I started out, my budget was $500 a week. So got a place to rent in uh, Bondi. And then as my income goes up, you know, $750 a week, oh, maybe we can get a place with a view over the opera house. And then later on in the journey, obviously, as your income goes, oh, you know, let's get a place, you know, four bedroom house, you know, with a pool and things like that, you know, Sunshine Coast. And but the starting point is always the budget. It's not what's available on the market. Um, so there's a point you've made multiple times, Chris, is that Australia has really been a victim of its own success through the mining boom. We weren't really impacted by the financial crisis and incomes have continued to rise. And that's just flowed through to the rental market and rents have gone up over time. And it seems to be people will spend about a quarter 
of their income on rent. And then in that context, um, this is the reason why asset prices rarely fall too much, because if they fall, as they do periodically through the cycles, then investors, uh, well, the yields become too attractive and then they bid the prices all the way back up again. Um, uh, you know, if the yield becomes relatively attractive compared to other asset classes like uh, fixed interest or the stock market, uh, then the prices just go back up and the asset price finds its equilibrium that way. So that was the one key takeaway that kind of explained why we don't get the big declines in housing prices very often that people are always seemingly predicting. Uh, the other point was just on um, bridesmaid suburbs. Cameron's made some money himself following this uh, uh, strategy, I guess, which is if you can't afford to get into the, the, the most appealing or uh, blue chip suburb, then look for the ripple effects out to the next best alternative. Um, so I was thinking about somewhere like Woolongabba in Brisbane, you know, pretty unattractive suburb 10 or 20 years ago. But as prices get too high in places like East Brisbane, the ripple effect takes people out uh, to the next best alternative and then prices rise there. So look, there's lots in the book and it really cuts through the crap. Um, but those were, from an investor perspective, two of the key takeaways really. One is that uh, rental income uh, or in the across the market is really, um, or rental uh, payments, I should say, is pretty constant. People just spend what they can afford. And the second point uh, following on from that is that asset prices don't fall too far before people bid them back up. And then, and then thirdly, if you can follow that ripple effect and look for those bridesmaid suburbs, you'll probably do pretty well. Well, a lot to take in there, Pete. I haven't read the book, to be honest, and uh, I'm looking forward to listening to your conversation with Dr. Cameron. He's a smart guy. I've um, interviewed him uh, myself before on The Elephant. Um, I mean, your first point around rents, I do think that's definitely true. There's a rental ceiling um, and then there's a rental floor, I would say. And, you know, at some point, even though the capital value of a property can keep going up, doesn't mean the rents can keep going up. Um, and so then the yields fall, you know, that's hence why... You know, property is a low yielding um, in resident uh, investment because people are willing to pay a lot of money for it, but they're not willing to pay you know ridiculous money to rent it. You know, because there's other options. They just say, "Well, you know, I'd love, I don't need that uh, long term security. This is just short term. Yeah, I could pay an extra two hundred dollars a week, but I'd rather save that money for a housing deposit. Rent is dead money. There's that mentality there. Um, I do think though, it also depends on the type of property you've got and the rental demand for that property and who wants to rent your property and what other alternatives they've got, right? So for example, like in uh, if a lot of higher income couples and families get pushed out of buying um, because borrowing capacity is really tight or they haven't got the savings um, and they can't rent apartments and so they really want to rent a house um, and houses run on them and they can't afford houses and they can't make a lifestyle move, you know, regionally or to the outer ring or something. So they, then they're forced to rent a small uh, lot of properties, right? And depending on their incomes, a little bit, they get competed up on whoever's earning the more money, um, you know, the most money basically. And so there can be almost a ripple effect in housing rents, I would say. So as house prices go up, um, they become more unaffordable. As they become more unaffordable, also they become more unaffordable to investors. So you get less investors. Um, and the rental supply of houses gets tighter. So there's less houses for rent. But then also the demand starts to shift, you know. So, you know, more and more high-income families can't afford to buy and then they're having, getting forced to rent and housing rents can potentially rise at a faster rate. There is a point there, though, where, 
you know, they, they then enter the market. But I would say that there's more and more people not being able to enter, even on higher incomes, um, due to how tight borrowing capacities are and the deposit they need and things like that. And so, um, and then I do think that, you know, rental stock's really going to decrease. Now, units are a bit different. I think that we can, um, you know, what you're seeing now is rents are much better than they were two years ago or three years ago. And what's that in doing is encouraging investors to the market, right? Even though interest rates are high, you know, that cost differential, depending on what they're buying, um, feels less. And they're also betting rates are going to come down. And so they're saying, well, actually, now it's a good time to enter. Um, so higher rent is encouraging investors to enter. Whereas if rents didn't go up over the last few years, um, you know, people will be looking at their cash flows under higher interest rates. So well, I'm not going to buy the negative cash flow is just too big. Um, and so when more investors enter, you know, even though there's a lot of investors exiting at the moment, which is not going to create this issue. Um, but if there was that, if that did play out, more investors enter would create more rental stock that would keep a cap on rents and maybe, um, and then you'd start to see rents come back down again. So that's that equilibrium effect playing out. The ripple effect, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's been going on for decades, right? Um, but I think in the past, people did think they could just get the suburb they want. But I would say, you know, you want to, if you're going to go live in a property for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, um, you really want to say, well, you know, what's, what can I buy? Can I buy in a place that maybe it's not where I want to live now? Maybe I ideally want to be in this suburb because, you know, that's where my friends are and that's where my, I've been renting. But, you know, to get, can I get a similar lifestyle to what I really want? Maybe not the next suburb. Maybe it's even two or three suburbs away or a couple of train stations, but it still would offer a very similar lifestyle. Maybe the people like me aren't there now, but maybe they will be there in five years' time because they're going to get pushed out. So maybe they're – and you might find you get way better value for money buying there because you can get more – a bit much bigger block size. Um, you know, you can get – not everyone's buying in there and renovating and the medians aren't going up and things like that. So, yeah, when you think bridesmaid, a lot of people just think the next one. But I would say you even consider two or three. You know, yeah, sometimes you have two or three bridesmaids or four, right? So um, – Check that out as well. I've, I have seen that, um, you know, work. Or I often recommend that to clients that they go, well, it's not much discounted if I just go the next one. I go, well, why don't you go the next one after that? Um, you know, then it's not usually too far away from where you really want to be anyway because you're only talking a couple of suburbs, a couple of train stops. Um, and, um, yeah, maybe the cafes aren't great there. But, hey, jump on a train, you're there. You know, maybe the, there's no restaurants. Maybe it's not as livelihood. There's not as many people like you. But, you can still get to where you want to be. And what you'll quickly find is that the suburb will change. And you'll be like, oh, hang on a sec. There is people like us moving here. And um, then then that changed. The third point, P, what was that one on the um, yeah, the bridesmaid? What was the last one? Uh, well, I think you've covered it. Yeah, it was the, the, the first point was really two in one. It was about the... Um, the, the 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 rents people start with their budget and then just find the best available property and the asset mm. price kind of feeds off that the other point on bridesmaid suburbs was the other one so i think on the the rental supply point i saw uh, abs figures this week residential construction slowed another five percent in the last quarter of 2023 i think a few reasons for that one is um well there was another big building firm went into administration this week another 120 projects affected by that um so that's part of it as the pipeline shrinks um largely home building or house building is slowing from pretty high levels it should be said i think um unit construction it seems to be picking up in queensland now um 
and to some degree in New South Wales, which is good to see because there's a real shortage of units. But Victoria, uh, well, Victoria's got a notional building target of 800,000 new homes over the next decade. And it's off to a shocking start on that. Um, I think, look, part of the issue here is um, we've got new land taxes. There's a lot of uh, shall we say, almost anti-landlord legislation. And people usually say, well, look, it doesn't matter if an investor sells because the first home buyer buys and there's no change, da, 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 which is all true. But I think the thing is, when you look at it, the new unit supply is mostly bought and mostly funded by new investors. And if you take the investors out of the market, the new supply is just not going to be there. It's just going to dry up. And that's actually what the figures were showing late 2023. Big plunge in unit construction, in Victoria, way down from where we were in even in 2019 before COVID. Um, so that's not good. I, I don't know what's going to happen in terms of the supply for Melbourne and Victoria, but it's not going to keep up. Uh, construction seems to be picking up again in Brisbane, where there's a chronic shortage. But uh, yeah, Victoria's got a few challenges there. And um, yeah, well, look, everyone keeps telling me I'm wrong. So we'll see what happens to the rental market in Victoria over the next year or two. Um, Chris, we're flying through on time. Let's go to this third story. Mortgage stress close to GFC levels. Uh, Roy Morgan Research, there's 1.6 million stressed loans, about 31% of homeowners, extremely at risk, 994,000 mortgages. Uh, the cause is basically fixed rate mortgages resetting, but also now we've got unemployment um, rising. So we've got over 600,000 unemployed, so that would be um, a fair part of it, I suppose, um, as the economy um, as the economy slows. Um, so the percentage of mortgages under stress was higher in May 2008 during the global financial crisis when we had higher mortgage rates. I've had a few people uh, chirping away at me saying, you know, well, you guys, you know, you, you cheered for this. And I, I think, um, well, let's have a think what's happened. Well, we've seen the fastest increase in uh, interest rates uh, in modern history. So that's really the main driver of everything. Um, now, the inflation figures around this week, uh, the monthly inflation figures for January, again, softer than expected, down to 3.4%. And in fact, on a monthly basis, it was a, a negative uh, change in prices, minus 0.3% or a bit more, actually. Um, so it looks like um, the trajectory for interest rates is on the way back down. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, this is, so this is um, stressed mortgages. It's not people in arrears. It's not people defaulting. It's just people under some kind of financial stress, which will probably manifest itself in slower retail sales and turnover rather than people defaulting all over the place. But yeah, it did uh, generate quite a few headlines. Um, how are you finding your um, client book, Chris? Are people coping okay? Yeah, we're not getting anyone really, can't think of anyone recently that have, you know, come and said, look, I need to go on a payment holiday. There was a couple late last year, in fairness. Um, and, you know, particularly when there was a lost job or, or something, it, it also changed the situation, you know, unexpected um, costs, etc. But no, we're not getting emails coming to us. I do think people do believe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And they, I do think behind the scenes, there are absolutely people struggling and that are doing everything they can, whether they're swapping jobs, whether they're asking family for money, whether they're selling things, whether they're cutting back their expenses. Um, and that's what people do. You know, naturally, um, no one would expect rates to have gone up as high as they did, as quick as they did, and potentially have stayed as high as they have, um, you know. And I think there is a lag on, you know, the cost of interest rates. You know, you start have to eat away your buffer first. You have to, you know, 
use all other resources till you actually go to the bank or till you go to your broker and say that you need some help. Um, however, even if this happens, though, you know, you're not going to be forced to sell your property straight away, right? So if you get the bank on side, they'll most likely give you some type of payment holiday. Even at the end of that payment holiday, they, they, if they could extend it, they will. If they can show that there's signs of things getting better, um, maybe they'll give you a reduced payment. Maybe they'll give you interest only. So, you know, I think that's, you know, sometimes surprises people. They think that, you know, rates are going to go up, then people are going to get have to sell and there's going to be this big crash in prices. Well, that didn't happen, did it, right? Um, and now people are probably thinking, oh, there's going to be this mortgage stress. There's going to be people rushing for the exits. Well, no, maybe not now, maybe in 12, 18 months. But who's to say that, you know, there's not a rate cut in the next six months? Maybe no one rate cut won't make much of a difference. Um, but if it's two, three, four, five, that, you know, may happen over the next, you know, period, um, and maybe there's they've got the ability to refinance, maybe they can get equity out, maybe they can reduce their repayments, maybe they can go interest only, maybe they could sell an investment property, maybe they get a bonus through work. And so what maybe feels stressful today could actually reduce. If there is people selling, which there will be, ultimately you're selling that into a massively undersupplied market. I would say some of the observation we've made in February, you know, it's the last day of February today. There you go, one, once every four years, isn't it, Pete? Um, the 29th today, you should be celebrating that. Um, it's the only day of the year when, uh, was, it, was it the 29th of February, the only day of the year then when the husband is right or whatever the phrase is. <laughs> it happens once every four years. <laughs> every four years. My daughter was due on the 29th of February, and I was absolutely gunning for that day. Um, <laughs> it'd be completely unique, you know, not unique, but um, rare to meet someone else born on that day, but uh, she was the eighth I always debate this with my kids. I say, if someone's <laughs> born on the 29th of February, do they age, you know, like in dog years or something, you know, like the... <laughs> After when when they're sixteen years old, they're really only four because they've only had four birthdays. They get very agitated about this. About when when should you celebrate your birthday? Is it on the you know the twenty eighth or the the first day of the next month? I don't know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Off topic. Uh, yeah, one of my mates. So he's going to one of his friends who I'm not friends with. Uh, party and yeah, she was uh, getting a bit upset because not, not the numbers weren't looking great. And she goes, well, I only have a party every four years. So, <laughs> uh, and I was just like, that's actually quite funny. It's actually a good way to get people to your party is, um, is to say it's once every four years. But um, yeah, ultimately, I think that's that's the way that mortgage stress plays out. It doesn't just bang, X happens and Y people sell. And I, the market is absolutely under supplies. Um, what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing actually is you know, the B's and C's weren't selling that well at the end of last year. You know, there was a bit of trepidation around rates, but I think that confidence has come back there. And people are a little bit anxious that if rate cuts come and then the market, and they've been pushing out, they're going to the, the, the nice properties, right? And they're seeing how busy it is. And they're almost like, well, if I miss out on this and the market does jump, then I'm going to miss out on this property I don't want to buy today. And so some of the older stock that isn't, you know, atrocious is selling um, and the vendors meeting the market. I think there's a bit of that as well. A bit of vendors just saying, well, actually, no, I want to meet the market now because I actually want to enter the market and I don't want to lose out on both sides of the transaction. Not every seller buys before they, they sell. I'd probably say it's more the opposite. People want to sell first just for that clarity and certainty. One of the things that is a little bit concerning I'm seeing as well is that um, people who uh, have a property, maybe it's an apartment or, and they've got a bit of equity, um, and they want to do something, they do want to do further investing. I do think a lot of the investors entering the market are people who probably should be upgraders. Um, 
and uh, you know they've got uh, or they've got one investment property and they're renting and they're doubling down on their investment strategy and they're just trying to park the the pressure of making a decision on buying something to live in and you know though that pressure never goes away unfortunately um, yes sometimes it's best to not buy something to live in or your future home if you have no idea where you're going to be long term no matter whether it's what country or what city or yeah, or what your family situation could look like. So, yeah, I get it, you know. But some people are in very uh, stable, steady relationships. They're talking about kids. They're talking about all their family are from a city. Um, and they're just going, well, it all feels too much. I'm worried about repayment. So I'm just going to go down this investing route and see how it goes. Um, and what my worry is is when they come back in two or three years' time, they're going to be like, oh, hang on a sec. I, we do really need to buy a house now um, and uh, I've bought these investment properties and I've, maybe I shouldn't have bought all those. I have to sell them all now to buy a house and has that all been worth it? And now it's actually cost me money because they didn't go up as much as I thought. I had costs, I had capital gains tax and then the thing that I would have bought three years ago for X amount has now jumped, you know, 10% or 15% and, um, you know, I potentially could have made that happen uh, you know, two or three years ago, if I didn't buy that investment property and I sold that other investment property. And so be really conscious on that right now is, um, you know, not dealing with the, the hard thing and going for the easy option, which is just going and buying some random investment property somewhere. Um, you know, I had three conversations on Tuesday with that exact story. Absolutely. Yeah. So just to, uh, to, to wrap up on uh, two points really on the Roy Morgan piece. Firstly, uh, this index, it makes a lot of sense to me. It does seem to sort of map to what we're generally seeing in the economy. I think some of the other indices are always at record highs. Every month it's a new record and it gets a lot of headlines. But this one kind of makes sense. I, I think there's two things. Firstly, very, very sensitive modelling to interest rates. So in 2008, in May, 35.6% um, of loans were at risk. But then by early 2009, it had dropped to 20 So interest rate cuts make a massive difference and very quickly. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, secondly, uh, we've got uh, tax cuts coming in July, which will help. Uh, and um, I actually said two points, but there is a third one. And that is um, uh, we've got here 19.8% of mortgage holders extremely at risk. But it's worth noting that figure never goes to zero. Um, even the long run average is 14.3%. So, yes, it's higher than the long run average, but it's not like it's ever going to go to nil. Um, the way this modeling works is you've always got a portion of loans at risk and a portion of loans extremely at risk. And uh, yeah, your, um, your point's well taken there, Chris, in terms of strategy. Um, so in that context, if you're not sure about your next step, whether you should be looking to upgrade to a family home um, from renting or whether you're uh, looking to do something as an investor, well, it's important to get that decision right because it's hard to unpick it if you go down that route. It's uh, property a bit different from the stock market. You make fewer decisions, but the ones you do make uh, tend to be bigger and more important quite often. Um, so, Chris, if people want to track you down, um, Flint Group is the place to go. Oh, no, just in the show notes, there's a link there. Absolutely, just uh, you know, check that out. I mean, how's things going with you on the buying side, Pete? Is everything going all right? Too busy. Yeah, very, very busy. Extremely competitive around the $800,000 yeah. price point in Brisbane. There's a lot of people in that kind of 800 to 1 million price range and there's not mm. much stock and we're seeing the same buyers agents and the same properties but it's happening we're getting stuff bought quite a few people looking at commercial property as well uh, mm. just from the yield perspective but yeah it's just competitive not much stock uh, not much quality stock on the market but i guess we've been saying that now for six months 
I don't think it's going to end for you, mate. I think um, the leaving Sydney, uh, Melbourne conversation is already starting to brew again. And that's where I think Brisbane takes a real jump because the whole buyer wealth starts to increase up there um, and that's happening COVID. And I think it's going to start coming on the conversation uh, more and more. It's already popping up that people are looking at the Central Coast, Wollongong, making big lifestyle shifts up to Newcastle. I've had this week as well. Um, and these people aren't even from Newcastle. So I think Brisbane's one of those options, particularly for people who haven't got strong family ties. And so, um, yeah, I think that that wave of interstate migration is going to come back in force, you know, sometime this year as well for you. So look forward to these chats every week, Pete, and happy Sunday to everyone listening. And, um, yeah, send any questions through. I'm doing a Q&A right now with Owen on some property questions. So if you've got any others you want us to answer, please send them through. And we look forward to chatting next week. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.